trip to our standard White Lake, um, which is where I, we had gone every year since I had, before I was born. Uh, we went on family vacation. On day two of this vacation, I dove into shallow water and broke my neck and became immediately paralyzed. Because of what God did before and then during and then after this injury, um, the path to ministry, it took a different route, but I went into ministry. I'm sorry. I know it's just right. It's distracting me. I know it's distracting you. Hello. Anyway, I'll keep fixing it throughout our time, but because of what God did, the path to ministry took a different route than I had expected, and yet after about four months of recovering in Atlanta, Georgia at a very intensive hospital, uh, I began to get phone calls. I said, Cameron, we heard the story of what God did, and that story I can't get into today, all the details. That'll be another invite back, maybe. Um, I can't get into the details, um, but because of what God did, people wanted me to start uh, sharing my story, and so I began doing that, and it really took off for the first couple years, and so I started a nonprofit just to kind of, you know, you have to have a little bit of money coming in to be able to do anything, so we started a nonprofit to do that, and it's been really a very interesting ride over 10 years of watching the Lord uh, orchestrate a path of taking a moment that seems like suffering, a moment, well, that is suffering, a moment that seems like tragedy, and actually turning it into a moment of what some would call triumph. God took what I went through and has used it for his glory and for the good of others. And not only that, but he's taken my heart through quite the journey, as you can imagine, over the years. And what was initially uh, a perspective that I had on suffering, that perspective has actually changed over the years. And I've adjusted. Part of my story is that I actually was completely convinced that God was going to heal me. And then understanding the purpose of God in suffering, some of which we might even see today, helped me understand, okay, there's more to this. There's more to this journey than just watching the big miracle. There's actually bigger miracles to be had. Watching my own heart change and the heart of people around me change. And so much of my ministry now is to other people who suffer or people who don't but will suffer in the future because we all are going to. Part of my ministry now is to share some of what I've discovered of the glory of God in suffering. So that's just a little bit of my story. Um, again, so much more I could tell. Um, but I do want to get into... Lamentations 3, and um, we'll, we'll, we'll get there in just a moment. Um, but there's actually a little bit of another story that I want to tell, and some of this is going to be recap because you have a great pastor, um, about what, where does this book come from? Like, what is going on here? And I, I did listen to the sermons leading up to this point. So again, some of this will be recap, but I just want us to, again, get in our minds what is going on for these people uh, that are lamenting such sorrows. So Genesis 1 through 11 basically tells the story of here's how the world got messed up. Here's how the brokenness happened. And we have Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. We have other things where cosmic beings are, are rebelling against the God of the universe. It's, it's nuts. But by the time you hit Genesis 12, you have the call of a man named Abraham. Abraham or Abram is his name at first. And God makes a promise to Abram. He says, Abram, look, the world's broken. It's messed up. But I tell you what, I have a plan to fix this whole thing, and I want to use you and your family to bring about the fix of this world. 
I want to restore all things. I want to renew creation, and I want to use you. In other words, he said to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Well, the rest of Genesis is the story of Abram becoming a family and that family becoming a nation. And then this nation, which we call the nation of Israel, receives the same calling. God says to Israel, you're going to be a light to the nations. And this plan of restoration, I'm actually going to work through you. Imagine the calling. And then we find in Exodus 19.20, God codifies this to a covenant. A covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai. He enters into covenant with his people and he says, you're my chosen people in the earth. And he makes all kinds of promises to this people. Part of the promises is gre- are great blessings for obedience. Part of the promises are discipline for disobedience. It's the nature of the covenant. Well, this nation goes forward and immediately has some issues, but they start to straighten some things out. They get into a particular piece of land that God had, a- had promised all the way back to Abraham called the land of Israel. They get into this land, and things are pretty great, and then they're not. And then they get a little better, and then they go downhill. And then they hit a high point with a man named King David. King David is like, yeah, we're like new creation. Here we go. It's time. We're doing it. And then you hit Solomon, and things start to go downhill, and they go downhill, and they go downhill. And the question becomes, where is the calling of God upon our lives? And finally, the capstone of the discipline that God said all the way back at Mount Sinai occurs And Babylon, well, really Assyria, and then Babylon comes and wipes out the last trace of hope that this people has of walking in their calling, or so it would seem. And therefore, we find in the midst of this a weeping prophet named Jeremiah writing a lamentation about the sufferings that his people went through. But we have to understand this isn't just, oh, a few people went through a hard thing. A really hard thing. This people understands their calling. Their calling to be a light to the nations. Their calling to be God's answer to the problem in the world. And in the destruction of their city and this temple, that calling seems to be gone. Not just hope for this people, but hope for the world. Therefore, there's lamentation. And... If we just had the Old Testament, and actually many Jewish people make this argument because they don't believe that the New Testament is, is legitimate or scripture, they would explain to us that, look, the story of God does not end on a high note. It's not that great. Our canon does not end good. You Christians who always have to have a good end to your story, that's not how our story goes. And I just kind of want to embrace that a little bit. I kind of want to embrace that. I think Adam would have us do the same. Let's embrace some of the tension of the pain. That is lamentation. And yet, I would argue with the Jewish person who says that to us, which I love. I've learned so much from Jewish people. But I would argue and I would say, actually, even your scripture has hope in it. Even your scripture has a reason to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Lamentation chapter 3, as Adam told us a moment ago, is like the only place in the entire book where we have a little bit of a high point. 
where the author says, I mean, Lamentations 1 and 2 is just like, this sucks, this sucks, God, where are you? And for just a few verses, just a few verses, we get the high point, which we'll find in Lamentations chapter 3. So let me check my notes and make sure that's all of my intro. <laughs> I know Adam's like, what am I supposed to be done? 11-ish, is that? Okay. No, that's not a good answer. I'll, 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 I'll keep my eye on the clock, don't worry. So Lamentations chapter 3, we get to see this high point. And I made this note, I think even just last night, because it really struck me, if that's what's happening in this chapter, we finally get reason to hope. We finally get to see uh, a bit of rejoicing in the suffering. What that means for us is that we get an example of what someone in a desperate situation looks to for hope and rejoicing. It's almost like uh, we extract a little bit of evidence to do an experiment on what would someone in the midst of great suffering, like biblically, what would, they, what, what would their reason for hope be? What conclusions would they come to in the midst of that? And that's what this chapter gives us. Now, let's keep in mind the bigger story, because I want to make one more point uh, before we get into kind of our main points, is that this story of lamentation is not written about us. In fact, it's not even written to us. But as the people of God, it is written for us. And because of that, we can learn from this. But we do have to understand, this was written about a particular situation, a particular group of people, and sometimes we can't make a story about ourselves. It's very easy to do that, especially as Westerners. But man, we can look at this and we can draw some principles out. What this means is that not every point that we find in this book is going to match one-to-one on our situations. That's fine. But this is wisdom literature. So we come and we read. And we meditate. And we glean. One of the first pieces of wisdom that I think that we can find from the book of Lamentation, I imagine Adam has pretty much made this point and driven it home, but that mourning is a necessary part of the human response to suffering. Mourning. Lamentation. It is a necessary part. And guys, I, I have had this experience. I believe you probably have too where part of the Western experience and part of much of church experience, not here, of course, part of much of church experience is that we're actually trained not to lament. We're trained to press it down, to move forward. For me, when I was really in the moment of like, God's going to heal me, I was trained in that tradition to say any act of lamentation and mourning is actually the opposite of an expression of faith. You're expressing doubt. Guys, the Hebrew tradition has built into itself seasons of mourning and lamentation after great losses and suffering. You lose a family, you are required to mourn for a certain period of time. It's part of the tradition. You know why? Because God knows as humans we have to have that. You have to mourn. I remember so many times, not even so much about the injury itself, but there's a lot of peripheral things that happen when you go through what I, what, what I happened with, uh, you go through what I went through. There's a lot of peripheral sufferings that I went through that I just pressed on through. Tried not to let the tears come up. Don't let anyone know how I feel. So unhealthy. 
and you're not honoring God. I'm not saying you're being dishonoring, but the act of it is not an expression of honor to him. I know it may feel like it. It's not. He wants you to lament. And we just went through something in the earth where we need that. We need to know that. So I want to free you today to lament as part of the appropriate human response. Okay, let's actually now turn to Lamentation, and this is the longest chapter, so I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Um, I took little sections out throughout, so let's turn to the first, uh, first verse, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 1. And I'll read a section and just kind of we'll throw up our main points as we go through. So verse 1, I'm going to do 1 through 6. We'll skip 7, um, but then we'll make a point out of verse 8 as well. The author says this, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he has turned his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. Pause. Selah. First point I want to say is that um, your point may be a little bit more abbreviated than what I have, but the author believes that God is ultimately behind and yet in control of the situation of suffering. We just need to acknowledge that. It's awkward. We need to, we'll probably theolo- theologize about it over lunch. But the fact is, is that the author believes that God is at work in the midst of this. If we bring it all the way back to the covenant, then we know, like, theologically, biblically, God said there is going to be discipline. There is going to be discipline for suffering. And I just want to say... Without getting to one of my points here in a moment, I just want to say, let us sit with that and actually be okay with that. (laughs) Because I think that the author would have us take confidence in that fact. If God is behind this, we'll see in a moment, there may actually be hope. But still, let's look at the situation that the author's in. Let's think about it, and let's say, my iPad keeps turning off on me. In a moment like this, it's most appropriate to mourn. We've already made this point. In a moment like this, it's it's most appropriate to mourn. But I want to look at verse 8, and I want to see something else that the author says. And I I just want it to be an example to us of the things that it's okay to say when you're mourning. Sometimes it's okay to be theologically incorrect, not saying that this verse necessarily is. But the Lord isn't up here being like, make sure when you're, when you're really hurting, you don't say anything. Ju- you you got to make sure you say everything just right. Let's look at verse 8. He says, though I called and cried to help, he shuts out my prayer. Now, I, I don't know. Like, there's times when it looks like the Lord really doesn't answer the prayers of a group of people. I just think if Jeremiah writes this, Jeremiah is probably not one of those people. I don't know. Jeremiah is pretty cool. But look at what he says. He looks upwards to God and he says, you don't even listen to me anymore. Have you ever been there? I have a few times where it's like I have prayed and prayed and prayed 
And, and I will say, I don't think there's any place that I've been for a long, long term where I'm like, he still has not answered something that I believe he should answer. But let me, let me, let me back up. God has not been unfaithful. That's what I'm trying to say. There are times when, I'm, yes, I think he should have answered something that it's like, okay, I realize maybe he shouldn't have. But the point of, of this is that God has been faithful to me. He's been faithful to Jeremiah. He's been faithful to all of us. And yet there's those moments where it's like, God, I've been in a desert for three years now. You've, you've given me springs to get me through it. But man, where are you? I don't think you listen to me anymore. That's okay to say. It's okay to say. I don't think it's okay to stop there. I would encourage you to keep going, to keep pressing, and to turn your mind to joy. But it's okay to say. We'll keep moving, um, but let's just sit with the awkwardness of the fact that the author believes that God is ultimately behind and yet in control of it. Um, we'll skip down now uh, to verse 16. We're going to read 16 through 24. We'll pull up our next point from there. Just read with me. Again, I am in the ESV, um, so if, if you have a different translation. But verse 16, he says, He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. We need to, we need to pause and see what he just said. He says, my endurance and my hope have both perished. This author is actually, he's a master of language, of literature. And he sets something up for us right here that if we just read through this quickly, we'll miss. My hope has perished. Hope is gone. Let's keep reading. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers, and it is bowed down within me. And then verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. You just said your hope has perished. What happened? He stops and he says, no. I'm going to call this to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will have hope. Verse 22 is what the author calls to mind and therefore has hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The Hebrew word here for steadfast love is the word chesed. It's so tough to translate into English, but it essentially means, I even had to just like write something down to try and get it. It's a covenant word, meaning a committed faithfulness to love to a covenant partner. Committed faithfulness to have committed love to a covenant partner. You mentioned, Adam mentioned, uh, the covenant of marriage last week, and that's such a good metaphor for the relationship between God and His Jew and, and the Israelite people here, is that they recognize we are under discipline because we're in covenant, and the way it looks, we should have no hope. But I'm going to remember the covenant kind of love 
that the God that we serve has. And when I remember that, I have hope. In other words, the faithful love of God says, I can have hope in any situation. It's that love of God, that faithfulness of God that the author calls to mind in the midst of his mourning and says, I said before I had no hope, but I didn't remember the love of God, the chesed of my God. I'll keep hope. point I want to draw out here is that the author presents a different perspective. Sorry, that's our next point. The author knows that God is behind the situation, like our first point says, and if God is behind the situation, there's hope because God is a God of mercy. In other words, why take comfort in the fact that God is, is behind some of the suffering that we go through? Now, not all of the suffering. But yet all of the suffering still has to pass through his sovereignty. So why is there comfort? Why take solace in that except this, that God is a God of mercy? Listen, I don't want to get too up here with this. God is in control of everything you go through. That means the ultimate covenant, faithful, merciful being in the universe is in control of your situation. It's not arbitrary. You're not going to just spin off into oblivion. He has you. One thing that I've learned, like I'm not a Calvinist. I, I don't know, you might be. I'm not all that Calvinist. And yet, and yet, I take, I revel in the sovereignty of God. And I have seen it. Man, have I seen it. So much so that I've seen, I'll, I'll probably s overlap on one of my points. I have seen his hand so orchestrate what I've been through for the good that I'm like, I think you did this, and I think I'm okay with it. The author knows that God is behind the situation, and therefore there's hope. Let's go to verse 25 through 30. The author says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. See, see the change? This is different than the rest of the book so far. He's starting to say positive things. <laughs> He's starting to turn a leaf over. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good that a man, it is good for a man that he bear the yoke of his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may be yet hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. And let him be filled with insults. The point I want to say here is that the author presents a different perspective on suffering. He instructs us to, in a way, actually embrace suffering to think well of it for the outcome that it produces. Th this, is, this is what the author, this is one of the conclusions that he comes to. In the midst of having all hope lost, cities torn down, our calling is gone, he says, but I want you to have a different perspective on suffering than everybody else. I want you to actually think well of it. I want you to actually embrace it. 
And look, embracing suffering doesn't mean we go out and like try to find things that are going to hurt us. That's not, that's called probably asceticism or, or something like that. Look, you can put jelly on your toast, okay? That's fine. But suffering, when it comes, we need to begin to retrain our mind to say, no, this is actually a good thing. This is actually t- something to embrace, not as an end unto itself. That would be wrong. Suffering is not good just for the sake of suffering. But look, something that I have learned is that suffering is good because of what it produces. It is producing in you something. It is producing character. It is producing the fruits of the spirit. And you get to be like your king every moment you suffer. Suffering produces something. So I want to instruct you. I want to encourage you. When it comes, actively make the decision, no. I'm going to rejoice in this. I'm going to think well of what I'm going through because I know what it's producing. I want to look, though, this leads into our next point at verse 30. Let's just read it again. He, the, the author says to those who suffer, let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. I just wonder, who does this remind us of? Our next point is that our ultimate example in the embrace of suffering is Jesus himself. Jesus is our ultimate example of embracing suffering. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, if you want to turn there with me, verse 1 through 3. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Really, it has ministered to my heart and what I've been through, probably like a few other passages. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, it says this. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Imagine Jeremiah in, in uh, Jerusalem as it's being sacked. He's being carried off to Babylon, and he says, let's run with endurance this next part, portion of our lives. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, doing what? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame And because of that is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint hearted. Guys, look, I'm saying think well of suffering, embrace it. But the ultimate example of that was Jesus Christ, who didn't do it just because of the arbitrary, just for arbitrary reasons. He hung on that cross with joy because there was something set before him. There was a resurrection to come. There was the glorification to be had at the right hand of God. This is the way we embrace suffering. We know, look, this isn't always going to be this way. There will be a reward in the future for what I'm going through. This is the way we embrace suffering. And we look at Jesus, our king. Jesus is our example of embracing suffering. But why would we embrace suffering? I've already said it, but I just want to put a scripture behind it. James 1, 2 through 4 says this. 
Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let endurance have the effect on it that God wants it to have. God is wanting to turn you into something. He's wanting to create you more into the image of his son. And it's through suffering and endurance and difficulty that he does this. So let's rejoice. Let's embrace it. I want to make this next point. Because a lot of times when we think of suffering, we think of maybe not getting our bills paid. We think of maybe suffering uh, in our physical bodies, maybe a health situation, car accident. What about the suffering of the heart? What about sorrow? Because that's really what this book is about. And this is the point that I want to say, that this form of suffering, the suffering of the heart, is part of the sanctifying journey of the believer. We must carry this cross too. One of the most sanctifying suffering experiences we're going to have in life is the suffering of the heart. In fact, really the suffering of the body is only dangerous because of the suffering of the heart that it produces. When that comes, I want to say that's part of the plan, too. This is why lamentation is so significant. I have so much more I want to say. Let's begin at least start starting to land the plane. As we move forward, the author shares his understanding of the character of God in the midst of suffering. Let's just read this verse. Lamentation. I, I don't want <laughs> I don't want me to explain this next portion. I think the text does it the best. I, I sent this to Adam yesterday and tagged underneath it. This might be the most one of the most profound verses in all of the scriptures. Lamentation three thirty one through thirty three says this For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he calls grief he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And then 33, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. He does not afflict from his heart. The CSB says this. He does not enjoy bringing affliction or suffering on mankind. Imagine being in this place of suffering of lamenting and recognizing this is not God's greatest desire. Perhaps it's necessary. Perhaps we brought it on ourselves. Perhaps this is actually part of the journey that the sovereignty of God knows I have to go through. And yet I need to know the character of God in this is that he does not afflict from his heart. So my point, it's up, that God's strongest desire is not to inflict suffering but he does so out of a higher wisdom. We need to trust his wisdom and his plan. 
I don't know. I, I feel like this is so significant for someone to know who goes through suffering. God is in, is in charge, yes. God is sovereign, yes. We see his hand and plan behind it, yes. But you need to know his greatest desire, his character, is not that he wants to do this. It's that in his wisdom, he knows he has to. In his wisdom, he allows it. He does not inflict from his heart. I have watched God's orchestrating hand. I just wrote this down this morning. I've watched God's orchestrating hand in what I've suffered and come to conclude that in some non in some way I can't understand, he's behind it. But I also realize that he hasn't inflicted from his heart. This point is so important as we move on to our last couple points, but don't let it don't let it go too quickly by. Let's move now to 37, verse 37 through 42. Um, this point we've made it already, uh, but the author really nails it home here. Who has spoken and it come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the most high, from the mouth of the most high that good and bad comes? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sin? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hands. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. Guys, this is why it was important to say at the beginning that not all of lamentation can be set one for one on all of our situations. They are under judgment and affliction because of their sin. Some of us are not. You may not be going through suffering because of your sin. You need to know that. There is, however, moments when we go through discipline because of actual sin that we've committed. But often that's not the case. So how do we relate to it? I want to say this. That sin has led to the brokenness of the world. This is, yeah, one of my next points. Sin has led to the brokenness of the world. We saw that in Genesis. When we experience a bit of this brokenness, let us examine where sin could be in our hearts and return to the Lord in this. One of the conclusions that Jeremiah comes through in his suffering is he says, I need to examine my heart for sin and I need to repent. Guys, sin... This point isn't just, hey, you sin and that's why you're suffering. Far from it. But yet, every moment of suffering that we go through, every even a hurricane in the earth is supposed to remind us, okay, sin led to this. At some point in history, brokenness is in the earth because of it. Let me, let me turn to the inside and say, where is sin inside me? So a key point to, to bring out from Lamentations is to say, okay, no matter whether it's my fault, whether I'm being disciplined for it or not, I need to look at my heart and say, where is it still inside me? Where could I repent further? Where is the thing that brought brokenness still in me? Let me, let me examine my heart and repent. Sin and broken sin led to the brokenness of the world and where we experience a bit of this brokenness, when we experience brokenness, 
Let's examine our hearts and find it. Last verse I'll read. 57, 55 through 57, Jeremiah says this. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit, and you heard my plea. Do not close your ear to, the, to my cry for help. I love this next part. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. My point here is this. In suffering, we must call to the Lord for help and comfort, and he will answer. Look, the West has trained us, and you and me, all of us, to call on any number of things when we suffer. Social media is a quick dopamine hit that we can get to get through the suffering of boredom even. We're trained to go to the bottle or to food or to sex or name your escape. But listen, that's not the way of the believer. We know where to go. Call on him. And notice his answer. Do not fear. In the pit of despair, he says, don't fear. My point is in suffering, we must call to the Lord for help and comfort, and he will answer. And the last thing I want to say in closing, <laughs> kind of a, a heavy place to land, but the rest of Lamentations does not really get better is to say this, things don't always work out in this life. Jeremiah is looking at a city that really he doesn't know if it's ever going to be rebuilt. And really, in a way, it never sees its former glory, even to this day, the city of Jerusalem. Things don't always work out in this life. Some cities will never be rebuilt. That's okay. And you say, why in the world is that okay? <laughs> How is that okay? I am dealing with a medical situation with a spinal cord injury that has, it has no remedy. There's not, there's not a cure for what I go through. And unless science comes up with something or the Lord decides to do a miracle, my city will not be rebuilt. And that's okay. It wouldn't be okay if I didn't follow Jesus. But listen to me, disciple of Jesus, it's okay for a city not to be rebuilt because we as Jesus followers have a bigger hope. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, the ultimate hope all the way back that was spoken to Abraham, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to restore creation. That is still yet to come. The resurrection of the dead onto a new planet is yet to come. We have a greater hope. And the ultimate thing, the only reason that I have reframed my understanding of suffering is because of this hope. Jesus will descend from the clouds. He will conquer his enemies. He will restore the earth back to the garden state, and he'll give me a resurrected body. He'll give you a resurrected body. 
on a new creation with no pain, no suffering. All of this is done away with, and the cities will actually be rebuilt. 